The ads that I find the most impressive are, are not necessarily the funniest ones, but they are the ads that are able to convince me that I have a problem that I didn't even know I had. Uh, they, they draw us in because they refer to common human conditions, and then they bundle them together, call them a problem, and say, uh, you know, we have the product to fix it, right? So you, you've heard these kind of ads, haven't you? Um, they ask these kind of questions. Uh, are you tired? Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, do, you, uh, do you find yourself worrying? Get, get a little worried now. Uh, do you find yourself breathing like all day long? That's me, right? Sorry, folks, uh, forgot to say hello. Welcome. Hey, good to see you back in uh, some familiar places. Some of you are sitting in the exact same spot you have been the other two weeks. That's very cool. And nice to be back in what is now a bit of a familiar space for me, a TV tonight. Are you stuck in a moment? A table and... Right. Uh, Jared has brought this out uh, every week now, and I've never worked with plant life, so Jared's a bit of the plant guy, Jared Malcolm, producer of this uh, episode. But what he does is he tells me each week when he puts it down that this is a hedge of protection, which, which makes me feel really good, because if there is attack, uh, coming. Um, obviously, it's not a big attack because this is a pretty small hedge. And uh, so, uh, Jared, I'll need that for one more week of protection, please. And maybe after that, we can we can auction it off. Like, okay, the auction would start. Are you facing attacks? Are, are, are you nervous? Do you need a hedge of protection? Right? Something like that. If I was going to write an eschatological advertisement for what I think is actually a quite serious eschatological disorder. Uh, this is, the way, this is I, the way I would start the ad. I would start it with a series of questions. Here, here they are. Are you in a situation where you do not even know how to pray? Next. Is God's will a mystery? Next. Do you know why glory and suffering seem to follow you all the days of your life? <laughs> and one more. Are you dissatisfied with life even when times are good? Okay, you're saying, Dr. Van, this last one is common human condition. Absolutely. Uh, one of the reasons that the Rolling Stones track, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, is so popular is not just the tune, but it's, right? Can't, can't get no satisfaction. No, look, uh, th there is a certain amount of this eschatological disorder that relates to all humans on the planet, because after all, we're all created in the image of God. But this eschatological disorder, and you can tell by most of the questions there, are particularly appropriate for the Christian. There is something happens when we come to Christ that creates something of a disorder, an issue, 
that we have to deal with, that we all deal with. And if Christians deal with it generally, boy, for Pentecostals, this is viral. I'll, I'll explain what I mean in a couple moments. Okay, so cause, symptoms, cure. Eschatological disorder. The cause starts with location. We are in a moment, a place in time and space. Let's go back to what by now I think is a bit of a familiar chart, right? We are, we are right here. We're here. We're, we're stuck in this moment when the age of Adam is still continuing and will. We are, we are not yet when the age of Christ comes in its fullness, but we're already experiencing the beginning of it. We are stuck in a moment between two eras in history, a unique era in history. We call it the last days. You say, Dr. Van, this has been going on a long time. Yes, it has. We're, we're stuck in this moment, still facing the age of Adam and its conditions while experiencing something in the future. Uh, to, to describe this in scriptural terms, let's go to Romans chapter 5, okay? And right, uh, right around the middle of that chapter, Paul begins to describe what it's like to be stuck between the age of Adam and the age of Christ. And he gives us some description about what both of those eras are like. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. So note, Paul is saying we are in an era of sin and death. This is the age of Adam. Folks, we're still in that age. Yes, look around. Sin, yes. Death, yes. But a couple verses later, he clarifies that there is something else that's happening too. There's another era. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision, okay, of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So you have again, Paul says, look, uh, because of Adam, we're in his era. It's, it's an era of death. Something else is happening too, because we're also in the era when the presence of Jesus Christ is being felt. And so it's, it's a time of grace and it's a gift of righteousness where, boy, this is different, isn't it? We reign in life through this righteousness, right? Okay, age of Adam, age of Christ. The cause is location. And everybody who comes to Jesus faces this pressure from both sides. Uh, remember the chart? We are still in an age that's passing away while we're living in an age that is 
still on its way, but not here completely. Death, but also grace. Okay, so what are the symptoms then? Let me suggest to you that there are three primary symptoms, and so you, you should recognize these because they are symptoms of this eschatological disorder. The first symptom is this, that you experience both suffering and glory at the same time, sometimes in the same hour, often in the same day, <laughs> repeatedly in the course of a week. Uh, when I want to understand what it's like to live with this disorder, we saw the cause of it in chapter five. When I want to look at uh, what it's like to live with this, I go to chapter eight. Now, now by the way, folks, uh, I don't go to chapter seven to try to understand what life is like as we wait for Jesus to return. I know, I know some do. And by Romans seven, some of you are already there ahead of me. You know, Paul says, look, what I wanna do, I don't. What I don't want to do, I do. Uh, look, may I suggest that because he keeps referring to what it's like to have the standards of the law that he can't keep, he's not talking about the Christian life, he's talking about the pre-Christian life, right? And the dilemma of knowing there's a standard that can't be kept. When I want to understand how Paul understands what it's like to live in this overlap, I go to Romans 8 and I start in Romans 8, 18, because here's where he starts to lay it out. I consider that our present sufferings wow, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Present, interesting, right? Uh, he puts that right in as his definition of the Christian life. But he says, you know, really, they're not even worth comparing because of the glory that is ahead of us. And may I suggest, in some way, we are already experiencing in bits, right? Remember the chart, right? Okay, now this is really interesting, isn't it? I don't know if you have ever felt shame because you felt your Christian life was inferior to someone whose Christian life seemed more victorious, superior. You look at your very present, all too present sufferings, and you look at what appears to be the victory in Jesus march of somebody that uh, is in your small group or somebody who sits down the row from you that you always say, hey, how you doing? Oh, great, conquering. Folks, the, the only shame of not feeling like you're always in victory, the only shame here is that if somebody intentionally made you feel that way, let's flip it over. If this is not something that is a part of your Christian life, <laughs> is it the Christian life? This eschatological disorder 
creates tension in us is that we are, when we know there's something better, we're still dealing with first symptom of this eschatological disorder is that you experience here and now both joy and pain, victory and setback, anticipation, disappointment. Paul says, the first symptom of this eschatological disorder is that we're experiencing what's on its way out, the past, while we're experiencing something of the future in anticipation of it coming in its fullness. Number two, and uh, if, if, you're, if you're tracking with your notes, I don't have a verse on the screen, I'm gonna give you one. I was thinking about it today, should have put this one in. Uh, the, the second symptom is that you find yourself leaning forward, uh, like like a bit like a bit off balance, um, a bit of, a bit of, and I've had a touch of this, a bit of vertical. You you feel a bit vertiginous. This is the second symptom of this eschatological disorder. You find yourself not completely in balance, and you certainly. Don't find yourself just chilling. The Christian life is not leaning back. It's because for the Christian, the future is more important than the past. You remember day one. We believe because God created the world and he will bring it to a better end that history has progress. And we said that similarly, if we're connected to God through Christ, our life has progress too. It's going somewhere. We are not condemned to live cycles of failure back, back, back. But in Jesus, hey, we have those moments, but Okay, we get pushed back a little bit, but our basic posture is this. Because Christianity is forward-leaning. In Christianity, the future is more important than the past. The glory to come is more significant than the present sufferings, right? And so it leaves us in this little bit of an imbalanced state. pressing forward, feeling some resistance, but yet pressing forward through it, right? So if you meet somebody who says that life for them is just chill, or Christianese, resting on the promises, standing firm and solid, they may have sort of missed the idea that Christianity is pushing ahead, not just leaning back. Someday it'll be chill if what is glorious to you is chilling. But um, we're not there yet. And so we live life 
a little bit imbalanced. Okay. Third symptom. There's a noise to this eschatological disorder. Third symptom is groaning. There is, there is a noise to this, right? It's, it's not the groaning of despair. It's going with this posture, you know, where we're always leaning forward. There's a sound to this because in leaning forward, we're pushing. It's, it's, it's the groan of progress. It's the groan of movement. It's the groan that you hear the tennis player making when he's sending the ball back over the net. It, it, it's the groaning that you hear from the canoeist pushing the oars through the water, or to, or to use Paul's terminology, his illustration. The, this, this eschatological disorder, the, the, the sound of it is the mother-to-be <laughs> groaning as she pushes that baby into the world, right? Uh, the, the third symptom of this eschatological disorder is that you find yourself groaning a lot. This maybe isn't what I put in a salvation ad, right? Hey, come to Jesus and you'll start groaning. But folks, it's, it's the most natural sound for many of us because we're suffering from an eschatological disorder. It's the third great symptom. And this groaning is, is so significant that it echoes through all different levels of God's creation. Well, let's start with God's creation, right? Sound of groaning in the universe. We know that the whole creation has been, there we go, first appearance. As in the pains of childbirth up, right up to the present time. Now, the previous verse explains it. So I started with the groan. Let's go back a verse that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The reason that creation is groaning is that it's anticipating liberation. Uh, the rhythm of the world has been irregular, erratic, ever since Adam and Eve made their made their misstep, right? And so Paul says, creation is groaning, but, but it's not a groaning of despair. It's a groaning of longing. It's a groaning of anticipation, okay? So creation's groaning. Hey, and those with this eschatological disorder, uh, we groan too. Next verse. Not only so, not just creation. But we ourselves who have the, okay, first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly and sometimes outwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, as creation is groaning for a better day. Uh, well, we are too. And it's this anticipation of a better day that causes us to groan because we know there's something better, but we're stuck in a moment 
right. But now look at this. I said to you at the beginning that this eschatological disorder is common to Christians, but it's viral amongst Pentecostals. Let me tell you now why it's viral amongst Pentecostals. It is the first fruits of the Spirit that we have tasted. This is experiential language. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, because particularly in the Pentecostal movement, we have emphasized so much what the Spirit does. We're particularly prone to the groaning, this eschatological uh, disorder, uh, this symptom of eschatological disorder, because we've tasted something better, and now that we've tasted it, it's ruined every other taste. Now that we've tasted the first fruit, we want the bushels and the baskets and the harvest. This is, this is not what we put in an ad for joining a Pentecostal church. But Paul says, once you've tasted of the Spirit, you start groaning because you're now waiting for it to finish. So we think of the Spirit as, as freedom and joy and healing and empowerment. And Paul says that also causes us to groan rather than do a victory dance because we don't always live in that victory. Look, we, we dealt with this before. It's suffering and glory. So the taste of the future makes us dissatisfied with the past and we groan not out of despair, but uh, we, we groan because we're longing for something better and we're just tired of being stuck when we know what the future could be like because we've tasted it. All right. I've got to go apologize to our producer, Jared Malcolm. We'll be right back. Okay, I'm back with my quick conference with uh, Jared Malcolm. And I just want to say, and this comes quite sincerely, uh, I now think after chatting with him that he might be the greatest producer in the history of all videos ever shot, not just at King Street, but in Christendom. Okay, there we go. Okay, when, when I decided to step away, here's where we were. We're talking about our groans as longing and here Paul says, it's, it's not a, a, a groan of despair, it's a groan of hope. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We're groaning, but we don't give up. It's coming. And our groaning expresses our longing for it. Good. So as part of our eschatological disorder, uh, sometimes we groan. But not just creation, not just us, but the spirit is also groaning. Let's, let's take a look at the next scripture. In the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. He's groaning. Why? Because of our weakness. Folks, uh, this weakness 
is being, is a way of describing being stuck in a moment when we're experiencing both suffering <laughs> and joy. Paul describes it here as a weakness because sometimes we don't know how we ought to pray. Think of it. Well, you know. How do you pray with confidence? How do you know, how do you know how to pray with confidence when you're, you can't be certain you know the outcome? So we prayed for somebody that sits to the right of the platform at King Street, and she was healed and delivered. Her son came home. And we're praying for somebody that sits to the left. He's no longer with us. He didn't survive what we prayed for. How do we pray when we're stuck between suffering and glory? The Spirit knows how to pray. In our weakness, when we don't know what we ought to pray for, the Spirit starts praying. The next slide will take us a little bit further here. And he who searches our hearts, the Lord, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. When we don't know how to pray because we don't know exactly what God's will is in a particular situation, though we hope we know, the Spirit does, and the Spirit prays for God's will. A traditional Pentecostal understanding of this intercession of the Spirit is that this is connected to praying in the Spirit, when we, when we pray in tongues that the Spirit is then interceding for us when we don't know what to pray for and we don't even know what we're saying. <laughs> uh, the Spirit is praying for God's will in our lives. Okay. The cause, the symptoms. Recognize any of those symptoms? You have the same eschatological disorder that I have the cure. There is no cure for this on earth. But at least knowing what the disorder is and knowing that the Spirit and our Lord are helping us deal with the symptoms will be okay. Look, there's, there's no cure to Jesus comes because you remember the chart. Until he comes, we're still in the age of suffering and death. But the Lord is doing something because the last days are not simply days of despair. God is doing something. Something good is happening. Okay, let's go a little further in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to shuffle up the order here a little bit. We'll go from 829 back and then forward. Okay. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, Okay, high-powered words, but let's not get stuck there. Let's see what it's driving at. What is it that God is so intent on happening that he, he foreknows it and then predestines it? For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This is what we're driving for. This, this is the cure that fully heals our bodies. 
when we are completely conformed to the image of his son, the process has started. It's completed when he comes. Please note that this is, um, this is what I would consider the most concise definition of what the will of God is, and it applies equally to all of us. Of course, we play this out in different ways, right? Person who sits over here does it one way, over there another way, Jared another way, right? But for all of us, we regain what was marred or broken in the garden, the image of God, and we regain it as we take on the image of our Savior, Jesus. So that's the cure, folks. Balanced. <laughs> He's with us. We're like him. Okay, let's go back a verse, a verse that many of you know by heart. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, this is the work of God now. So we know the cure when Jesus comes, but there's something happening that's good right now, and it's this, that in all things, God is working for the good according to his purpose, and the next verse says that we become like Jesus. I won't stay long on this, just catch the point. Right now, whatever situation you face, God is intending to work in that situation that even now you're becoming more like Jesus, preparing you for what he will finish on that day. Every situation. God is working for this good that we become like Jesus. Okay, one more. And those he predestined, he also called, calling uh, for Paul is salvation language. He calls us, that's our moment. Of course, we receive it, but he makes the move. This is a call of salvation. For those he called, he also justified. This is what happens when we receive. He calls, we receive. And those he justified, no more suffering. Glorification, glory. Hey, uh, two springs ago, right towards the end of the spring, uh, the Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship. They had a parade. Hey, many of you were there. Uh, boy, our, our family got up early. We went, we went downtown too. You went? My wife had the sensibility to say, I'll watch it from home. <laughs> so we got there early to get a good spot, right? And we, and like, we had a good spot. But you know if you were there, particularly if you were there, that the parade was delayed and delayed and delayed because the organizers, well, when has Toronto had a victory parade? Um, and the organizers didn't anticipate the crowds. The crowds? They couldn't get the floats out of uh, Exhibition Place, the CNE. I mean, the, right? And, and you think about it. 
Toronto fans have suffered more than maybe any sport fans in North America. The suffering had been so great when the moment of glory came, we all wanted to be there, including me and my three girls and the men that are connected to the three girls and my, uh, my uh, brother-in-law and niece, and we're all there, and we got a great spot, and we're waiting now for two hours, and Allie and I decide, Allie, my youngest, uh, we, we, need to, we need to find a bathroom. It's ridiculous. So... There's a hotel over there. So it wasn't too bad getting there. Uh, Jared, we're, we're on this side, like we're on this side of the street. We only have to cross the road. There's the hotel, but we can't get in the doors here because, so all we had to do was go around the back. It only took us about 10 minutes. That wasn't so bad. But when we came out, I don't know what had happened, but it was around lunch hour and all the office workers are coming out and they got an hour for lunch and they, they want the glory. Uh, they want to see some glory. So they're all out there. And we come around, and it's taken us 20 minutes to get out the back of the hotel, just to the corner, across the street from where the rest of the family is standing, and we get stuck, absolutely stuck. We had pushed and shimmied. We are stuck. And I look over at Allie, and uh, you know my other daughters are texting me, Dad, come on, come on. We, you can't get stuck. Come on. Where are you? But we're stuck, and I look at Ali and say, Ali, I don't, I don't know. And, I mean, we're getting pushed. I mean, we're packed in. And then, then I felt it before I saw him. A, if, if you can imagine, somebody uh, more muscular than me. Uh, big guy starts pushing through the crowd. And Allie and I take one look at that guy, and we got in line behind him, and we followed him out. Follow Jesus. You'll be okay. Let's pray together. Lord, there are moments when we feel your presence so close that we think we're almost in heaven. And then we open our eyes. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in a time when we're being pulled in two different directions. May we follow you, Jesus, and you'll lead us home. Pray this in Jesus' name.